what he's got. My name is Clancy Immerslund, and I'm an alcoholic. I started out on the field toward the mound and was greeted by, hey, you, Saint... No, these are your notes, aren't they? The, uh... If you can't talk from the heart, don't talk at all. I'm very glad to be here this evening. I'm glad to be back in St. Louis. I think, uh, as has been... I want you to know, David, that I have never heard an introduction quite like that. And I, uh... No, it was it really was something, and I. Oh. If it weren't for the sobriety countdown, I'd have gone home. Uh, but I didn't stay around all this time not to be one of those left standing while the rest of you newcomer pukes are sitting down. I, um. I do want to commend the committee here. I, uh, I'll tell you, last weekend, last Saturday night, I was at a convention banquet, the largest one in the world, a, a annual convention, the Southern California Convention, where they get between six and 7,000 people at the convention, and the banquet goes on for miles, and it, uh, it really, to all it, all it is, is was, it was a very good convention, but it was no better than this one, because you have had all the elements of a good convention. You've had a hard-working committee, You've had people with enthusiasm, which enthusiasm, I'll tell you, is more important than years of sobriety. There's a lot of old people who've got years of sobriety that I would not want to trust to mow my lawn. <laughs> because they're... They're good people, but they're, they've lost the spark. I had a, I had a marathon... Or, there and the marathon that I led was on the subject of sticking with the winners was the topic I got and I was trying to explain to me what a winner is a winner is a person and all of you have heard that phrase stick with the winner stick with the winners I'll tell you what a winner is a winner is a person who is currently trying that's who the winners are I would much rather be with a person a year sober who was seeing what they had to do and trying to find what they had to do and enthusiastic than be with people 10 and 20 years sober who are trying to see what they don't have to do. I want to be with the enthusiastic people because i that's how I maintain my enthusiasm. A lot of people say to me, how is it after all these years that you still seem to be enthusiastic about AA? Because I surround myself with enthusiastic people. And when they stop being enthusiastic, they get gray to me. I still like them, but they become gray people, and I don't need any help in being gray. I can do that on my own. And I... Uh, I want to be an activist in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I, and it's a funny thing because part of me is, just like everybody else's part, I get tired and I get, my part of my mind tells me you shouldn't be doing all these things after all these years. You should be relaxing and become more, more of a detached, hovering figure who just steps in to set things aright and then disappears back in the... And uh, I've tried it a few times and it's a real pain in the ass, I'll tell you. It's, I don't know. I don't want to be a philosopher. I was. Forget the 
<laughs> and the thing, now she's from Texas. That kind of person put me in the insane asylum. Well, I don't judge. They, uh, but that's what I think we want to do. And that's what I think I like about this enthusiasm. There's a lot of enthusiasm. And I, I want to be with enthusiastic people. And when they stop being enthusiastic, they lose... I still like them, as I say, but they, they, lose their, they lose the spark from their eye. And that's what we have to try to find around here. When you're having a tough time, stick around the people with a, with a light in their eyes. So when the light goes out in your eyes, they'll have a light in their eyes. And when the light goes out in their eyes, you can help them. And it's back and forth. Because nobody can sustain it all the time. No matter how hard you work the program, you never rise above human being. And human beings sometimes get tired and they sometimes get cross and they sometimes get self-obsessed and they sometimes get detached. And they, we all have a tendency at such moments to take on our, the coloration of our background. And that's why you want to be with people who are trying, because to look good to jerks, you got to be a jerk. That's how they judge you. If you're running with jerks, the next time you're insecure, you'll turn into a jerk to win their approval, just without even being aware of it. A goof. If you want to be a goof, run with goofs, and pretty soon you become a goof. And if you run and run with people who are trying, eventually you'll find yourself trying just because that's what your peers are doing, the people around you are doing. So that's why I'm glad to be here. And I think this has been an excellent convention. I very much enjoyed Mary's talk last night. I... Uh, My heart went out to her husband. That's all I can tell you. He, the other thing I can think about his life it must have been like being a fawn in a forest fire. Just, oh. Get out of here, you dirty son of a bitch. Oh. How dare you be feeding the children when I'm drinking? God love you, sir. I'm glad it all straightened out. I was uh, very concerned later in the evening that she wasn't going to ever get well, and I wanted to make a run for it before she got me. Uh, a really an attractive, charming young lady who exemplifies Alcoholics Anonymous, and the meetings today have been very good. And I was just impressed as I could be this noon with this Al-Anon. I go to Al-Anon luncheons and listen to Al-Anon. I love Al-Anon's. Uh, Hell, I married one, you know, but, uh, well, I didn't know she was an Aldon when I married her. She wasn't an Aldon when I married her. She went bad later. But she, uh... But there have been some conventions where I would rather be flogged around the fleet than go to another Aldon luncheon. I went to one last year in San Diego, and my wife was the speaker. That had to be the all-time terrible experience. They put the husband on the podium, and you sat there and listened to an entirely different set of facts than what really happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I tried to, I tried to buttonhole the people individually afterwards and said, "Now let me tell you, I release you, you dirty bastard." Yeah. No rebuttal at an Al-Anon luncheon, I'll tell you. But today I think I, uh, 
I think Linda today gave as good an Al-Anon talk as I've ever heard. I just was impressed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not... She's got her Al-Anon shills here in the front row. Huh? I'll, this is the signal for applause. Uh, but she gave a great talk, and I just... Uh, just very bright and sharp, and I told her so afterwards that I... I probably, she probably didn't believe me, but I really meant it. And I uh, want to tell you something, Linda, wherever you're sitting, that I wouldn't want this spread around outside of the room, but I have a tape of your Al-Anon talk. I'm going to... Uh, if anybody else is ever in Omaha with a long drive, <laughs> let them screw up your life for the next few <laughs> And the marathon meetings have been very good, and I enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed listening to the people talk and participate. And it's a nice meeting tonight. I'm looking forward to hearing our speaker tomorrow morning. I think it's been an excellent job, and I think that everything has been fine. And that's really what you get out of a convention. And sometimes you, some of you are, I know a number of you are present at your first day convention. And I'll give you just a little piece of advice. About late Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, you're going to have a little bit of a depression. There's always a little downer after a convention where you've been up. Following every up, there's a little downer. This does not mean that life has ended for you. Just an end, I want to help you. So when it comes, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a compensatory device by your emotions to level up. You will, I know that uh, a lot of times at the end of conventions when you're kind of new, partially you want everybody to, you want to get out of there, but also when they go, you, you wish they'd all come back because it's, it's like a party and you want, when everybody goes home you've had a good time you want them to come back but that's what conventions are for conventions are not Alcoholics Anonymous this is not Alcoholics Anonymous this is a convocation of members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon and loved ones and so on but this is not Alcoholics Anonymous Alcoholics Anonymous is a way to do things this is merely where we get together to hype each other up to go out and do those things that way but when this convention ends, Alcoholics Anonymous is not ending, it is beginning. This is the pit stop. The race is out there on the track, and it's a hell of a lot harder out there than it is in here. There's an awful lot of people who are great AAs in conventions and meetings. I'm never any better that I'm in, when I'm in a meeting. I'm just wonderful. I, I was talking about that this afternoon, you know, that's what I think A is about. Uh, I have I'm, I live with emotions and I'm subjected to stimuli, such as all of you are. And you're out in the world and people, a lot of people out there are crapheads. You wish they weren't, but they are. <laughs> and they act funny and they usually wait till you're tired to act that way too. They just, sometimes they wait till you're hungry. You may have noticed that when you're hungry, people know it and act stupidly. <laughs> Don't know why. Don't know why. When you're tired, they just they just grind you a little bit. You know, like you can be driving on the freeway, tired, and nobody knows you're tired. But I can just see it ahead of me, seeing some old bag up there saying, "See the boy in the blue LTD? He's tired. I'm gonna cut that son of a bitch off." <laughs> can hardly wait for the next convention <laughs> to get back to where, where it's all right, where people act right. 
But that, uh, it turns out, is a part of the nature of one of the things we have to learn to live with. That that's the Alcoholics Anonymous and its meetings are the things we get together to share our experience, strength, and hope so that we can do something that people like you and I cannot do, which is to go out and live in the world and not have to induce chemicals that will render its stimuli tolerable. But that's a hard thing to understand because if you are like me, I had a great, terrible time. The worst years of my life came after I came to AA. And I was in and out, in and out, in and out for years and years around Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I know when I went to my first meeting, some old fool said to me, said, if you go to AA, your life will change significantly. And I thought to myself, Jesus, I hope so. I've been in jail three times. And I don't, you know, this is not the way an executive should be. And uh, I went to AA and my, went to jail 32 times. That uh, <laughs> certainly did change my life, I'll tell you. But the worst feelings of my life came after I came to AA. And I think one of the saddest things when you come to AA is when you sit in AA and you realize, I'm not like these people either. I'm not like these people. These people have a problem with drinking. I have a problem with drinking sometimes, but that is not my problem. My problem is something else. And I spent years trying to examine what that something else was, and I'm sure you have too. To, to go into that what seems to be a very acceptable thing to do but is just literally self-flagellation of the worst sort where you sit and examine yourself at length to see how you are it's just it's like the thing in the beginning of the twilight zone you're just <laughs> and I've made some great breakthroughs I've studied myself incessantly for a long time and I came to the conclusion little by little that there was something different about me, and what that difference was, was that I seemed to be too emotional. Somehow or other, I'm too emotional. And that emotion manifests itself in a number of ways. It's almost as though that people are born, and I know we all have emotions, I understand that, and then we're given a covering for the emotions so they're not just out to be poked by anybody passing by. And I had my covering and my emotions, but there were holes and deep holes in that part of my covering that covered my feelings of sensitivity. I had hole, a hole in me in the area where in my self-worth. I had a hole in my area that determined whether I was able to make small talk with people. I had a whole big hole in me in the area that would, should protect me against rejection. I was always, I always have been easily rejected. Just a tone of voice sometimes could just make me see that I was being put down. Just someone's offhand remark could just make me feel bad for a long time. A series of holes in me. And I always thought if I could, I gotta find some way to get around that. And I tried a lot of things. But I discovered when I was a boy in the Pacific during the Second World War, I stumbled onto the fact that alcohol can be used to fill these holes. And I drank it for years. I drank it to fill these holes. And 
I never found anything better. I'll tell you, I have never had a friend as good as alcohol in my life. I've had some good friends, but friends come and go. The best friend you have tonight may be moved away two years from now, and you, you'll write for a while and forget him. Some of you young guys may be under the illusion that your entire lifetime of happiness depends upon her smile. <laughs> you may be astonished to learn that you may not, two years from now, you may not remember her name. It's just one of those things. Jobs come and go, states come and go, cities. But when you can fill those holes, it just makes me function better. And I've heard people say, I thought I could do better when I was drinking. I'll tell you, I did do better when I was drinking. It literally made me able to function much better. Alcohol does all sorts of things. When I have the right amount of alcohol and that hole is filled, I don't get rejected. I reject. If someone rejects me, I look at them pityingly. You don't know what you're missing, bitch. I don't know. Move it out. When I am sober and that hole is there, a tone of voice can put me into a de almost suicidal depression. When I am drinking, I'm not depressed. I'm smooth. I feel good. I do well. I can make conversation. The only problem is, the only problem I've had in using, I guess alcohol to me is very similar to modern man's attempts to harness atomic energy. When it works, it just works great. There's nothing better that works better than atomic energy. Lights go on, wheels go on, boom, boom, you know. But every so often, a small mushroom-shaped cloud appears. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. I've got to watch them gauges more closely. I've spent my adult life watching gauges. Because I do fine, except sometimes when I don't, alcohol sloshes over the top of these holes. And then strange and bizarre things happen that interrupt the orderly flow of my performance. Uh, one spring, I was uh, nominated to be Junior Chamber of Commerce Young Man of the Year in the suburb of Chicago in February. I've talked, said this many, many times. There's a more succinct way to say it. By the end of that same year in December, through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, I was playing piano in a whorehouse in San Francisco. Yeah. I'm not putting that down. That's kind of fun for Lutherans, you know. <laughs> Seeing what all them Catholics are doing. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard to work that sort of experience in your resume later. You just... That's why a lot of us have big holes in our resume that says things like self-employed during this period. <laughs> Attending a university that later burned down without a trace. Um, I ran into a guy I'd been in San Francisco with. I had a wife and children stuck in the Midwest, and I felt bad about this. That's one thing about being a Norwegian Lutheran. Some of you aren't familiar with Norwegian Lutherans. 
there's a lot of these days there's it seems like AA has become almost in, interminably Catholic I, I'm not against it I you know but you know Alan on speaker this noon every everybody half the people you hear are Catholic and they're they're always usually they whine about how mean the nuns were when they were little <laughs> and they go on and on in our group we have three nuns and they whine about how mean the nuns were <laughs> and you get the feeling after a while if you're a Catholic you are you are a candidate for alcoholism because the strictness of the regime you have no out let me tell you something in Eau Claire, Wisconsin if you were a Norwegian Lutheran and you were weak and couldn't make it and you had to find an easier softer way you became a Catholic <laughs> that was for that was for quitters who just had to play bingo and uh, have fun and I uh the Lutheran Church never it seemed never to have the power to make me good for any length of time but it gave me just enough religion so I was unable to sustain evil very long and it I have a natural flair for evil it just seems so unfair to me that I just get comfortably evil and my conscience would get me and go, oh, Jesus makes you crazy so I ran this guy in San Francisco with he was going to hitchhike to Texas so we hitchhiked to Texas and I got started all over again as I was always doing kind of smoothed out my resume and I got a job in the newspaper there and he, I worked like a tiger in a year and by a year and a half from after that in the daytime I was working in a big advertising agency I won an award there at night I was on the faculty of the University of Texas directing a grand opera in the original Italian kind of fun to listen to Texans sing Italian <laughs> and I was writing a weekly sports column because I've always been a sportsman too now that's a kind of a wide variety I brought my wife in and I should say the al speaker today was talking about calendar counting and how difficult it is to be a Catholic and you have all these children I had uh, I can attest to that I in the post-war in the post-war surge when we came back from over there <laughs> steely-eyed sex-crazed killers <laughs> I married I met this lovely Catholic girl in college and my grandmother said oh don't marry a Catholic I said grandma this is the brave new post-war world there's no room for that bigotry that old country bigotry Norwegian bigotry this is not what we were fighting for and I married that girl and my grandmother was right <laughs> it isn't that she was a bad girl just worse than that she was a good girl and there's nothing in the world that like a good Catholic girl something they never tell little Lutherans about <laughs> if you've married a good Catholic girl you have just become the head of a rapidly growing family <clears throat> and I remember in the, I used to plead with her I said Jesus this is the brave new post-war world can't we use birth control no I said, how about just getting something for the prevention of disease? They sell it in a vending machine over here. They say they tickle. <laughs> no. 
they had a priest come by and he gave me about an hour and a half on the rhythm system, which is the Catholic version of birth control. And I listened intently and I just couldn't pick up that beat. I just... <laughs> so in addition to everything, I became a national distributor of small Catholics. <clears throat> So I brought my family into Texas. Nine months and ten seconds later, <clears throat> makes you crazy. And I was doing pretty good, except I had a, I got a little bit of a slosh going. And uh, and one day I got in a jam at the university, and the and the dean called me. And I'm sure most of you had this feeling. How one of the ways you know you're getting in trouble is when people start talking to you for your own good. <laughs> And you got to pretend to be interested, you know. Yeah. Now, this is for your own good. They all say different things, but they all have one thing in common. They all have little thin blue lips. <laughs> and he told me that I'd, he understand I'd been acting bizarrely in Juarez. And I want to tell him I haven't been acting bizarrely in Juarez. But I'm always... I've always been a little weak under pressure when the, there's a hand comes out of my shirt and goes, oh, I think, but I don't say it. Well, he said I had to stop drinking to hold my job, and I needed that job badly. And so I stopped drinking, and uh, it just made me crazy. And by the end of that year, I was in the Texas State Insane Asylum at Big Spring, Texas, committed for an indefinite to life because I had successfully committed suicide. That's where I got that's one of the great reasons I knew I was an alcoholic. Because my terrible feelings come when I'm sober. And people can... I drink to overcome these feelings, and sometimes I drink too much, and well-meaning people think i got a drinking problem. And I don't know how to explain to them. But you don't understand. And I had no way to explain, because I didn't understand either. I just knew that somewhere there must be some place I fit where I could use what skills I got instead of always being whipsawed around by people sooner or later. And I, uh, I thought about that a few months ago. I was down in that Texas city. I have some of my children now are nearby. I have a couple kids on the faculty of the University of New Mexico and a couple more kids who are going to school there. So I invited them to come down. And I showed them this little town where we used to live when they were little. And I said, here's, a, here's where you went to your first school. Here's where you went your first mass with your mother. And here's where we lived at that time. And here's where they put daddy away. <laughs> and as we were driving by that place, I had a terrible temptation. I wanted to jump in there and see if that old psychiatrist was in there who had... Because what had happened was I, my wife had taken my family to church. I was in such a state, I just went in the house, in the garage, hooked up a hose, turned on the motor laid down in the front seat, went to sleep, and died. And the neighbor heard the motor running and kicked open the door, and I was dead in the car. And he put me up and beat on my chest and sent me to the psych ward and examined me for a couple of weeks. And I thought about that later, you know, and that cockamamie psychiatrist. He had diagnosed me as a split, badly split personality, a schizophrenic depressive. And I wanted to rush in there and just grab him. He's old and feeble now, but I could handle him if he's still there. <laughs> I want to grab him by the shirt front and say, you old freak! You know, you could have ruined my life. You get the worst. You diagnosed me as a split personality. You must, you're crazy. You could have ruined my life, you know. 
Christ, if I had my personalities down to two, I'd have been all right. Yeah. I, uh... My problem has always been this ongoing group therapy when I'm driving alone in my car, you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, being committed for life to the Texas State Insane Asylum is what you call your basic resume buster. That is, you really, I escaped once, but in that area, there's no place to run to. I don't know if you've ever been to West Texas, but, you know, you get over the fence and they can see you running for three days. <laughs> and it's just a matter of time till the field glasses pick you up, you know. Well, Lamar Jean, there goes that little Yankee son bitch now. And, uh, so they gave me a lot of shock treatments that autumn. And after you had a lot of shock treatments, you never run much after that. You just kind of stand around and... Ask people, do you, uh, you remember my name? <laughs> I knew it. I, uh, and that Christmas, I was, uh, they saw that I directed a grand opera at the University of Texas, so they allowed me to direct the Christmas pageant at the Estate Insane Asylum, about a second grade level, so the whole student body could follow along. And, uh, I've again said this many times, but I'd like to hear it. It's not quite like directing an opera. The main, the main project when you're directing the Nuthouse Christmas pageant in Big Spring was just during rehearsals trying to hold the three wise men off the Virgin Mary, if you possibly could. <laughs> yeah. We just want to worship her clients. <laughs> I almost didn't get out of that Nuthouse, but they put it in an alcoholic ward. By that time, I'd been in and out of AA for six or seven years, so I knew about AA. So I pretended to be an alcoholic, and I got out. And I convinced some people that I had learned my lesson. And uh, the next spring, I was working in Dallas at the largest advertising agency in the South, a firm called Tracy Locke. I was living out in Highland Park by SMU. Nine months and ten seconds after I got home from the nut house, <coughs> another Catholic hit the street. And uh, I was really working to hold it all together. And I got some bad sloshing. And uh, I woke up one morning, and I was in the Phoenix, Arizona drunk tank. And the guy had just got done kicking my front teeth out because he said I'd vomit on his bunk. Did somebody laugh over there? <laughs> what kind of animals are you here? <laughs> this is one of the saddest goddamn things I've ever heard. <laughs> and that morning, I remember I was so sick. Funny how it goes through your mind. I remember thinking, I'm glad that about seven years before that, I would invested several thousand dollars in psychoanalysis. Because once you've been in deep psychoanalysis, you have understandings and perceptions that most people don't have. And I, that morning I was so sick, I was, couldn't even move my head out of the way of this guy's shoe while he kicked my teeth out. But I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. <laughs> I remember thinking... This son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> yeah. When you know things like that, it uh, it helps you. And a couple of months after that, I was on the I was thrown out of a mission on Skid Row in Los Angeles, and I stood in that street and I couldn't believe it. I I remember thinking, I wish you know I've done so well for a little while. I, you know, I think about this. 
this summer I went to a lot of the Olympic events in Los Angeles, the opening and and a lot of the uh, track and field events. And I, as I often joke about it, but it's almost basically true. I always look, some year they're going to have a 50-yard dash, and I'm going to get in it, because that's the story of my life. I'm the best 50-yard dash man I've ever known. I get off those blocks, for 50 yards I can be whatever you want. I can be a great employee, I can be a good husband, I can be a good father, I'm a good neighbor. And I go about 50 yards and I feel the tape that nobody else knows is there. And I I sit down and they come running by. We're running a marathon, you dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> but I do 50 yards. I'm a 50-yard dash man. It's the story of my life. I can do anything you want me to do until I run out of till those 50 yards. And then I just get the feeling they're using me or what am I doing here or it's so crappy and on and on. And then the problems start and the holes reappear and life starts getting gray again. I'm sure some of you have had that phenomenon. It seemed, that's one of the things I used to spend a lot of time thinking about. Somehow or other, I have been blessed, perhaps, but it's become a curse. I've been blessed by knowing that the world is full of color and I want it. I have been cursed by being always in situations that get gray on me. There's a speaker tomorrow morning is from Vancouver, Washington. I was up there talking a few years ago and there it was right after the explosion of this Mount St. Helens and they are talking about their experiences with the Mount St. Helens explosion it isn't like Hawaii you know where the hot lava comes pouring down the mountain and just the top of this mountain blew off and then for some time after that a very very fine dust just fell all the time and you know hardly paying attention to it except one day your lawn's getting gray and the children are gray and the car is gray and the house is gray and one guy said, I want my front lawn. I said, stop it! And the, which worked as well as anything else they tried. Nothing else, you know, just... And I thought about that, the plane on the way home. I thought, that's the story of my life. I have been in city after city, and I've done so well, and I've surrounded myself with colorful jobs and people and friends and situations. And one day, some celestial Mount St. Helens blows up. And then it starts to get gray. The nice new job starts to get gray. And the people I'm going around with start to get gray. And the kids are gray. And the car is gray. And pretty soon I'm back in a gray situation. And it just makes me half crazy. And that's one of the things I always hated about AA. AA is one of the greatest gray places of them all. You go to, when you're in a corner and you're just screwed, and you go back to AA. In those years, you went to, I went to AA. I knew AA couldn't help me. I discovered that after a couple of, years, a couple of meetings. But I went to it for years because other people thought my problem was a drinking problem. And I could buy some time by saying, I think I'll go to AA. That's a good idea. We'll give you another chance. Thanks. Give me a few weeks to make my plans. And I could come home. I'd get the heat off at home. He went, Charlotte, I've gone back to A&A. Wonderful. They... They want me to taper off. And there wasn't any Allen on them to screw it up for everybody. <laughs> Christ, since the foundation of Allen on, there hasn't been a moment's rest anywhere yet. What do you mean? We work the same steps you do, you son of a bitch. I know what you're about. <laughs> then they had the decency to trust you. None of this inscrutable goddamn cold smile. 
I know what you're doing, dear. Do what you have to do. <laughs> and uh, I go to A. A is the greatest place of all. You're just like stepping into the end of an endless gray tunnel. And every day you get up to another gray day and think, put one foot in front of the other. Do what's in front of you. And it just gets grayer and grayer. And so you just look ahead. Is anything going to ever brighten up? Nah. If you stay here a year, a little hatch opens and a scrawny arm drops a 39-cent cake. Is that all there is? That's all there is. Oh! <laughs> and these dreary steps just enough to make you crazy. You know, when you're highly sensitive and emotional and easily hurt and you have facades and defense mechanisms, it really doesn't help much. I'm an old drunk and I'm therefore I'm all unmanageable. God's going to make it all better. <laughs> I turn my problems over to God. I remember one time I was sitting in a meeting just half crazy. I said, I got a bunch of hot checks out. If I don't cover them by Monday, they're going to garnish you my wages. Jesus Christ, what do I do? Well, you better turn those checks over to your higher power. <laughs> and I did. And my higher power turned them over to Sheriff Peter Pitches. That's uh, hardly, hardly, then they want you to write an inventory. They wanted, they sound like they want you to write things I wouldn't even tell my psychiatrist. There's a lot of things I wouldn't tell my psychiatrist. I always had the, I don't know about you, but I'm a very sensitive to rejection. And I have a feeling if I ever told my psychiatrist years ago how I really felt, he would say, get out of my office, you sick son of a bitch. So I told him what I thought he needed to know. Unfortunately, he was unable to pick up the ball. But they want you to write things, terrible things, and then, thanks. That looks like the lighter I lost. They, uh, then they want you to read it to someone. You still like me, Jim? Yes, I do. Well, you just wait till you hear this. Is it going to help me to have some blabbermouth plumber know that I used to be married to a sheep outside of Butte, Montana? Yeah, that's, just... that's not part of my inventory, folks. I'm just That's what we call a figure of speech. Then you're going to ask God to get rid of all your defects of character so you can be like those sickening pukes that put on your case of get your own little set of blue lips. I don't believe I'd care to do that. That seems to be fun. I don't want to live like that. Make amends to people who've been screwing me for 30 years. Here's $10 for calling the cops on me that time. I'm sorry that you discharged me from my job and left me penniless, you old son of a bitch. Ten step being wrong and admitting it more more 
checking yourself out every day. How did I do today? How am I doing today? The committee in full cry in your head. You're all right. I don't think so. I do. I don't. Right. Right. Then a step on meditation, which is just wonderful for suicidal people. Just <laughs> if you ever really want to help somebody that's dingy, I tell you what you have them do: sit in a dark room for a couple hours and just think about things. <laughs> have them have their pistol right nearby, so you. And there's a great step there. If you go through all this in, indignity, all this nonsense, you're going to find the love you've been seeking, the understanding, the warmth, the, the place you fit. Yeah. You're going to be allowed to drive across town in the middle of the night and let some fool puke on your shoes <laughs> while you tell them about it. Oh, it's really wonderful. Not on my white shoes, you sick bastard. You know... AA is a great therapy for people who are drinkers. It is a terrible therapy for people who are thinkers. That's why I had to go to other therapies, into psychoanalysis and to metaphysics. I don't like to gloat to you people here. I know you're doing the best you can. But at one time, to the best of my knowledge, I was one of six people in the state of Texas who knew truth. a very heavy load to carry down that area. <laughs> they were so jealous they put me away. <laughs> I read Nietzsche and I read Schopenhauer and I read a lot of books, all the books that imitation intellectuals read. And you go back to AA when I got bad because people say, well, you ought to go back to AA. We'll give you another chance. Okay. And if AA isn't bad enough, when you're a Lutheran and a sinner and there's no hope for you anymore, then they start grinding you about God in AA. Don't you think you ought to return to God? No, I don't think you If God exists, I'm screwed. That's why I like Nietzsche. One of his characters says, why do, you, why do you worry about God? God is dead. He at one time perhaps created the universe, but uh, he's dead. There's anarchy throughout the universe. I remember reading that thing. God, I hope that's true. In fact, there's a very famous plaque in the theological seminary in Chicago that quotes Nietzsche and that says, God is dead, signed Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, 1884. And beneath it it says, Nietzsche is dead, signed God, 1906. <laughs> Life of grayness that I can't seem to escape. Even today, I sit with my grandchildren, and I've got a number of them. Look at my head, I'm bald, I'm only 28 years old. But I sit, and every Christmas, in fact, my daughter Susie, my youngest daughter, just told me before I came on this trip, she's pregnant again, going to have another baby, and it's just wonderful. And really, I, got, I love them all, but one by one, we sit at Christmas time and watch The Wizard of Oz. And maybe you've done that. I've, and I've never, I've seen it, I must have seen it 50 times now. And I, every time we get to the end of it, I just want to shout, 
Don't go back to Kansas. Jesus Christ, it's way back there. There's a little color here, Dorothy. And, you know, you get used to the munchkins I have. I knew about AA and I knew about philosophy and I knew about everything. I knew that there was no help for me in turning to God, returning to God. And I stood in the sidewalk dying and my family was gone, my children were gone, everybody was gone, my parents had written me off and I was an only child. When you're an only child and you're written off, that is sad. Um, and I, I just would have given anything if I could have known what was wrong with me. I wish it had been alcohol. Wish I would have been alcohol. And uh, one morning I walked 71 blocks in the cold rain in my t-shirt, no pair of pants and tennies, and all this time thinking, Jesus, if these people only I won awards, people, I had my picture in nationally in AP for doing remarkable things. And I, these people treat me like crap and there's nothing I can do about it. I went to this AA club and I went in the guy. He says, you can't come in here. I can't come in here. Why not? He says, remember, you're banned out of here. You stole the coffee money two weeks ago. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, I remember that now, yeah? You know? That's how I knew where this place was, you know? So I thought, I better pretend to be an alcoholic. So I give that little slip. He says, you don't have a slip. You're just a phony son of a bitch, and we all know it. I said, I guess you're right, Tom. But I thought... Someday I'm going to get some hot pliers and pull out your fingernails, you son of a bitch. Listen to you scream. He says, just go in the back room. Shut up. Don't let anybody know I let you in. You make me sick. God bless you, Tom. <laughs> but I thought I'm going to take those hot fingernails and stick them in your eye. Just... <clears throat> and I thought I'd better pretend to be an alcoholic like I did get out of that nut house in Texas. I, this is a bad thing. I'm a, I pretend to be an alcoholic. And... Uh, I had no idea then or thereafter for a long time that it would take so long for me to get it back on my feet. I, let, I played that sick game of being an alcoholic so long that those old pukes brainwashed me. They screwed up my head. That's why it's kind of strange to come here tonight at great expense and no little inconvenience. And... Uh, well into my second quarter century of sobriety. All right, 25 and a half years. I'm sorry, not 25 and a half years. If I can hold on till the end of this month, it'll be 26. I'm 25 years and 11 months in a week. Not that I'm keeping track. What do I care? When I was new, I used to think it was the quality of sobriety. I now realize it's the quantity. (laughs) And I've come here tonight just to talk to you newer people at your first convention and ask you this important question. Why can't you get a hold of this program the way we did in the old days? (laughs) Now, I haven't had any chemicals in my body for 25 years, 11 months, stronger than an aspirin. I've had... uh, I haven't had any marijuana. It's amazing in this day and age that there are still little pockets of pukes lurking along the road of happy destiny, 
saying things like book doesn't mention pot baby You misunderstand me. You think I'm judging them. The book does mention people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, which is a pretty good description. And I always want to take these kids, these kids who do this, and I don't put them down for it. God, I'm tolerant and good. I don't. (laughs) But when I hear some little puke say that, I want to go up and just shake them. Because they all think they're so macho. They wear their caps in meetings. And they, hey, baby, what's coming on down? <laughs> I want to shake him. Say, you think you're macho? You should have been smoking marijuana with me 30 years ago. When you got caught, it was automatic one to five in the state penitentiary. Boy, you smoked fast then. <laughs> Now in California, they give you a ticket for smoking. Sorry, you've been smoking marijuana. I'll have to give you a citation. Big deal. I haven't had any uh, therapies. It's true. I see a psychiatrist once a week now. And people sometimes say to me, if you work so well, why do you see a psychiatrist every week? And the answer is always the same. Because I've told him, if he doesn't come to that meeting, I won't be a sponsor. (laughs) I am. the only, but the only therapy I've had since 1958 is Alcoholics Anonymous and its steps and its people and its involvements and gradually its enthusiasms. That word enthusiasm is a good word to remember. You know what that comes from? I was enthusiastic before I knew where the word came from, so I didn't. But it's a funny thing. Enthusiasm is from the Greek root the word is N within Theos, God. Enthusiasm means the God within. That's what enthusiasm is. The God within person makes them better than they are sometimes. And I'm, I'm always glad when I can maintain that enthusiasm. I cannot do it all the time. Nobody can, but I can work at it. I can be with enthusiastic people till I get mine back. That's all. And I've had a I had a very difficult early sobriety. I lived in the backseat of an abandoned car for months. I, I had a terrible sponsor. I was thinking about that Mary was talking about. She had a mean sponsor. To me, sponsors are people who, you know, you, I'll tell you how to find a sponsor. Go to meetings until you hear somebody say, I have non-judgmental love. I love you just as you are. You need not change for me. And if our paths come together, perhaps we can walk hand in hand for a ways. I like your action. But even these old pukes get judgmental after a while. So you stay away from them. What you do is you call them late. Don't tell you ever call them. You call them late at 2 in the morning and say, Hello, Fred. I'm afraid I've let you and AA down. I drank. And if you've got a real sponsor, you haven't let us down. You're sick. You've had a relapse. That's all. I'm coming right over and I'll get some of the guys and we'll set up all night with you and we'll get you through this and we'll help you get sober and it'll be new and wonderful again. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're from Texas, aren't you? 
And I got some, I couldn't find a decent society sponsor in that AA club. I got some old puke that didn't understand sponsorship. I remember saying to him one day, Bob, he'd say to me things like, Kid, call me anytime, day or night. If it's late at night, better be important. But call me anytime, up until the time you take a drink. Once you take a drink, don't bother calling, because all you're going to hear from me is a click and a dial tone. I thought, Jesus Christ. <laughs> this guy don't know nothing about AA. He's only been around AA four years. I've been around nine. I, one day I said to him, Bob, I'm living in the back seat in an abandoned car like an animal. I'm cold and hungry a great deal. I'm not used to this. I'm an award-winning writer. I'm a talented band, Bob. I'm hungry a great deal. I'm dressed practically in rags. I'm cold. What do I do? Yes. Get a job. <laughs> Jesus, look how terrible I look. Get a terrible job. <laughs> Follow that direction to a T, I'll tell you. I had a lot of terrible jobs. But I, uh, I did the things he wanted me to do. We were talking somewhere about this, I think it was last night, in the, when, when the committee and the better types of alcoholics were sitting in our private room where you other people were dancing or whatever you little people do. <laughs> but, but we were talking about, it's a funny thing. I look back on that now, and I really respected that man. I hated him, but I respected him. The people that were nice to me when I didn't like myself, I loved them, but I never respected them. I can see it in retrospect, because I couldn't respect anybody who would like me for when I knew what I was. They were too easy to fool. Someone who was mean to me, I felt, could see through me, and I hated him for it, but I respected him. So I did things to get that old guy off my back, and I, when I was six months old, I was going to commit suicide, and he took that pain and made me take an inventory of the one thing I swore I'd never do, because, and I wrote things in there I never wrote to, I would never tell a psychiatrist. He took me for a ride along the ocean for 40 miles, and I read this to him, and I thought he was going to make me get out of his car, and I looked over, and he's going, I thought the old son of a bitch has snapped, you know. I've, I've taken that same ride maybe 200 times since then on the left side of the car while some other boob sits over there and reads. And I'm a much better sponsor than my sponsor ever was. When we get near Oxnard, I turn my head. Because <sighs> there are certain patterns, the specifics vary, but the feelings are always the same. You can, always, you can even tell when something's left out. Didn't you leave out something there? You've been talking to that bitch? <laughs> no, I just know what comes next, that's all. <laughs> and the great function of a fifth step, you know, that's the great function of a fourth and fifth step in AA. We keep thinking, why couldn't I do that as a psychiatrist? Because when you take a, when you get through this catharsis with a... Has the time come? <laughs> when you're married to a Catholic, you have to be ready to go at any moment. <laughs> but, but, 
for years I went around in scrub, just like this, all the time. Would you take that string out of my breast pocket there and hand me those scissors? Uh, but the great thing about psychoanalysis, as far as I see it, is that you can get rid of a lot of this stuff and the guy can give you suggestions. But what's missing is what you take a fifth step, I think, with a sponsor. I know a lot of people take it with a clergyman. That's fine with me. But to me, taking it with a clergyman is like taking it with a psychiatrist. I'm so glad I took it with my sponsor. That's the way we do it where I live. You take it with your sponsor. People say, I don't, I don't trust my sponsor. In other words, you're saying, I trust my sponsor with my life, but I don't want him to know my secrets. But you take it with your sponsor, or somebody in AA at any rate, and they can share with you, and hopefully at the end of this time, let you understand the true nature of your shortcomings. It isn't what you've been talking about, it's what underlying those. And when you get the nature of your shortcomings, you can sincerely and earnestly pray that God remove them. You can't ask God to remove something that happened 30 years ago. You can ask to remove the thing that caused those things to happen. And you can make amends. And most of us need pressure on that, because a lot of the amends you've got to make are to people I hate. I suppose partially because of the guilt I feel, but I hate them. And my sponsors made me go to used to make me go and make amends to people that I would just as soon have punched right in the face. But go in there. I'm sorry. I'm... And the funny thing was, I never hated them again. I never liked them, but I never, never laid awake and hated anybody after I made an amend to them. And a lot of them I've gotten to like over the years. And all of these things in AA, it's hard to understand. They are not designed for the person that you're doing them to. They're designed for you. But even before that, you've got to have some kind of an understanding what you're doing here. Now, I became somewhat successful again. And I got back and finally, after a couple of years, got a little job as a writer. And I went to work every day to please my stinking sponsor. And I got a... I got to be advertising director for a big medical corporation. I got in radio and television in Hollywood, and I was downtown doing public relations with oil companies, and marketing director in Beverly Hills. And when I was five years sober, the same wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my wallet all the way to a post office box in Dallas, leaped out of their post office box, fled to my side, attached themselves to me like a group of chiggers, <laughs> bled me white. Nine months and ten seconds later, a new California Catholic member of the St. Mark's Diocese appeared. Thank God I got a metronome right after that. But now they're all grown up and going away in the college. And Mother and I just sit in the living room each night and we rock and go through our photo albums. And <laughs> If you think that, I want to sell you a stock. <laughs> but, you know, it's all very fine. But the most important thing I've got to tell you, then, I said a long time ago, and none of you paid any attention to. Nor should you. I wouldn't pay any attention to it if I'd been in your position. I said, my name is Clancy Immisland, and I'm an alcoholic. That is the single most difficult thing I ever had to come to believe in my life. I did not believe I was an alcoholic when I was drinking. I did not believe I was an alcoholic when I came to AA. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic after I was sober because my problem was not alcohol. My problem were emotions and situations and feelings and intensities that I could not cope with. 
and I used drinking to fill the holes and now drinking became a problem. And I can swap drinking stories with anybody. But unlike those drinkers, my case is different. And I had no idea that everyone that ever came in the stores had that same feeling. And I had to survive and take actions I did not believe in for a while. That's one of the great things about having a sponsor whom you respect, whom you cannot manipulate, who maybe can see through you that you will do more than you can for someone who just says, do the best you can. Because the best I think I can do is somewhat less than the best I can do. But to survive, to discover the most important single thing I know about this illness. I have, if I wouldn't have found this, I would have been dead or in the insane asylum 24 years ago. I had to come to understand. I want to, as I always say, I want to say this slowly because it's an opposite of what you might think if you're kind of new. I had to come to learn that if my problem is alcohol, I am not an alcoholic. Or conversely, if I'm an alcoholic, my problem is not alcohol. And you might say, how can that be? That's stupid. That's not what I I think, and I bet my life on it every morning, that that's exactly what AA says, and that's the whole premise of this program, and that's the premise of everything we do here. And if it weren't that way, there'd be no need for AA. Now you say, but we are sure our problem is alcohol. If you're, and some speakers make it sound like it. They say, wow, I was drunk and I was just crazy. And I got sober and I was just wonderful. And I got drunk again and I was just crazy. And I got sober again and I was just wonderful. And I got drunk again and I was just... And I say, why do you drink for Christ's sake? You know, a person like you shouldn't drink. But if you're one of these people whose problem is alcohol and when you're sober, everything is all right... I've got a solution for you tonight that's going to revolutionize your life. Don't drink. Just leave your love offerings here up on the altar and move it on up. But if it turns out that you suffer from what I suffer from, the odds are about 98 to 2 that you're going to die from it. And without ever knowing what the hell was wrong. And never guessing what was wrong. I'm, unlike most of you, I'm in a position where I see alcoholics dying every day today. And I see alcoholics moving into alcoholic insanity till they can no longer function. And it's a hideous sight. But I'm going to tell you something. That, uh, that has nothing to do with anything. Except this. 98% of alcoholics like you and me are going to die from it. Or worse live in agony and insanity. If you cannot understand that what you and I suffer from is not an alcohol problem, it's something that sounds like alcohol, and we talk a lot about drinking in these meetings, but it's not alcohol. It's something called alcoholism. So what the hell is the difference between alcohol and alcoholism? A little three-letter suffix. What difference does that make? That little three-letter suffix is what makes people like you and me terminally ill, and if we can ever find out what the hell is wrong with it, It'll give us the only chance you will ever have to live in the world with any degree of comfort. And the difference, to really oversimplify it, but it's still true, the difference between an alcohol problem and the disease of alcoholism is just this. An alcohol problem is overcome by stopping drinking. Alcoholism, you will come to learn. Stopping drinking has no effect on it except to make your life more painful.
And that is why nearly all alcoholics die from it. Because you stop drinking, you stop the problem, and what happens? After there's a, maybe a certain surge when you're first sober, but pretty soon after that, the tension starts to come back, and the anxiety, and the feelings of being different, and the, the holes start to appear in your security, and your ability to cope, and your ability to make small talk, and your ability to withstand rejection, and the tensions come back. And the, as someone said this afternoon, a young man said feeling I've experienced many, many times. The feelings of being above people or below them, above them, below them, above them, below them. Just never like them. And on and on. You get to a point one day it just makes you half crazy. And the, the world is graying out around you, boy. I mean, you see the colors, but they're nothing. The gray is back. The gray in your soul is back. And you get to a point, scientists who study alcoholics say that you can get to a point where you literally must drink to preserve your sanity. And people say, if you drink, you'll go crazy. But you know if you don't drink, you can't stand it. i got to have some color. i got to fill up these holes. I don't actually say it to myself. I don't even think about abstractions, and I think I'll screw it and take a drink. Or the three words that kill people like you and me when we're sober and hanging on to their fists. And one day those three words come up and they say, what's the use? Jesus, what's the use? You get to a point where you just can't make it. Now, it's a funny thing. There are hundreds of thousands of people just like you and me who feel the same way you and I do, who are not alcoholics. They are known medically as intense or acute neurotics. They are people who see reality as it is, but unfortunately, like you and me, deal with it somewhat obsessively, what they call neurotically, overreact, obsess, get worse and worse. Sometimes they feel as bad as you and I will ever feel. Unless something happens, some of them snap and become psychotic. That's why doctors treat people like with these kind of symptoms with depressants, such as Valium and Librium, and all the things that hold you down. Because these people snap when you become psychotic. That's an almost irreversible condition. Everybody tells you, when you become truly psychotic, you never come back, hardly ever come back. Because what that means is your brain now has made things look different than they are to resolve the conflict. Sometimes it's just one thing, sometimes the whole ball of wax. Now here's a funny thing. Alcoholics almost never become psychotic. Cases of alcoholics becoming psychotic are almost invisible. You say, but they say alcoholism is the second greatest cause of insanity. Not from psychosis. Alcoholic insanity is not an emotional condition. It's a physical condition. It's when en enough alcohol in your blood over a long enough period that varies from very body to body eventually dries up enough brain cells. We call it a wet brain, but it's a dry brain till you can no longer function. People with wet brains are psych psychosis, al alcoholic insanity, not psychosis. They don't, they're not sitting in meetings acting funny or saying stupid things. They're sitting on chairs or on their beds, and people come by and change their diapers three times a day and feed them and put them to bed and get them up and change their diapers and feed them, and you can never, ever, ever get better. It's very similar to the last stages of syphilis, except for one thing. Syphilis has the decency to kill the patient. In alcoholic insanity, you can sit like that for 40 years and not know your name. 
Your body is healthy, but your brain is gone. I'll tell you that's. But alcoholics almost never snap and become psychotic. Why? When it gets bad enough, long enough, they will drink alcohol. So you say, why don't these damn neurotics drink alcohol? And they do. Some of them do. And that's the difference. Alcohol does not relieve the conflict in them. That's what they're talking about, a physical difference. Alcohol has to have a special effect on you. And if you're like me, you've often wondered, what does that effect? Does it make you stay drunk all the time? No. Does it make you act crazy? No. I see people dying who've never acted crazy once. What does it do to you? I'll tell you, as far as I know, alcohol does nothing different to my body than it will do to my grandmother's body. If she'll drink, drink for drink with me. It turns out that what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic is something I never would have guessed in 10,000 years by myself. It turns out that there is a special effect. Alcohol does something special for me that it doesn't do for most people. By the time it's doing something to me, it's way down the line. It does something special for me that I never knew. What does it do? It almost instantly alters my perception of reality. It almost instantly alters my relationship to my environment, wherever that environment may be. It almost instantly makes me larger and more self-contained and makes them smaller and less threatening to me. And I never knew it didn't do that for everybody. I thought if they don't drink, they don't have my problems. That's why, you know, a lot of us have gone through life wondering about those kind of people. People like us, that's why people like us have a tendency to run together with each other. You know, I want to be with people who are who understand colorful living. When it's 2 o'clock in the morning in Texas, and somebody says, Let's go to Warren! I want to be surrounded by people who say, Yeah! Yeah! I don't want to be around some little puke who says, Why? What'll I tell Barbara? I have to be to work at nine. Yeah! One of the great tests for the social drinker. At a party. It doesn't seem like much now, but it's a great test for a social drinker. I've always thought. When you see someone saying, Betty, I'm, uh, I had a couple too many, I think. I think you better drive home. If anybody in this room ever said that, I'd puke. The correct answer for me is, It's my goddamn car! And I'll drive your goddamn car! And you don't even get your ass out of here! Yeah. That's what I'm at the top of my game, for God's sake. And the only problem is, if alcohol does that for me, little by little, it atrophies whatever abilities I've had to cope with conflict without it. And one day, either the holes form or they've been there all along. That's one of the funny things about it. It isn't how much you drank or where you drank. It's, they call it, when alcohol begins to have this special effect on you, you don't know it. That's why they call it crossing an invisible line. Some people drink for 30 years before they get that effect. Some people have it the first time they ever drink and don't know anything else. That's why we have this paradox in AA. You sometimes see it at meetings. Some old fool will stand at the podium and say things like, I drank for 34 years. 
and looked accusingly at some little snot down there who was about 22 years old they have to say how can you be an alcoholic and when they don't realize the little snot is looking up and thinking you can't be much of an alcoholic if you lasted 35 years you old son of a bitch it doesn't make any difference when it begins to do it for you eventually you must have it and when you stop you will drink again that's why nearly all alcoholics die and I've never seen an alcoholic die who couldn't prove to me but you see my case was different I wasn't really an alcoholic I've had these situations and these memories and the what might have been and on and on the reason I mention that so you might come to understand the function of the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous are not to make you spiritual or wonderful or good they're to do something infinitely more complex they're to little by little fill the holes that make sobriety untenable little by little you'll never get rid of all of them because human beings can't get rid of them there's a certain amount of those holes in everybody but they don't have to be mercilessly attacking you and your psyche all the time that's one of the great things I know is that the function of Alcoholics Anonymous I know this that I was much surprised I came to believe in my sponsors my higher power people said I shouldn't do that and I said that's the only one I can believe in I dared believe in and I did things he suggested and I came to believe in AA and I did what AA suggested and I came to believe in God and I prayed earnestly to that God for almost a quarter of a century several times a day and I'm the one who gets people off to mass on time at my house you know. <laughs> come on come on what are we doing 20 minutes get going shut up you don't even account it I'll tell you, I, I, reached, I reached my peak as a schizophrenic a couple of years ago. My son was playing center for the St. Monica, Monica's High School Catholic football team, and they were playing the Lutheran High School. And I was running the 10-yard marker, and Jesus, there was a, the committee was in full cry that day, I'll tell you. <laughs> Get them Catholics! Get them Lutherans! Get them! <laughs> well, it's not been easy for me. But that's what AA is about. Let me just close. I want to close now because I know we've got something else to do. But I, one of the things that has intermittently I've noticed in the last few years, I want to just say a few words about. I hope, I don't think this will offend anybody because it's something I think that I want to remember and you want to remember. More and more, it is more and more common than people go to treatment centers today. When I got sober, there weren't any treatment centers. There may have been treatment centers, but not nothing to speak of. But look, and people from my era traditionally despise treatment centers. What do you use treatment centers in the old days? What's crap? I don't know, that's the way I always felt. Maybe Lutherans just have matches, but God damn it, they light. <laughs> anyway, and over the years, I've been under a little pressure because people call me an old fogey because I've been sneering towards treatment centers because I notice little things like there's a whole, seems to be a generation of AAs in some towns where they think a 12-step call is picking up someone and taking them to a detox. Yeah, well, I made a two 12-step calls this morning, got them both down there and locked up. 
That is not a 12-step call. That's called taxis. But anyway, I have little by little over the years, much against my will, come to accept the concept of treatment centers in some cases. I'm even more against treatment centers in other cases. Some of them are literally killing people, and a few are helping people. And I want to just for a moment, for some of you may wonder, why would people want to go to treatment centers anyway? They can go to AA for nothing. Why go to treatment centers and spend thousands of dollars? And you got to remember that, I'm glad, you know, if I'd come to AA now, it would have been all different. Because you come, it's like going, it's like going to Milwaukee and decide to go to Michigan. You're going to go across, you want to get across the lake. And here's a trim little skiff called the SS Treatment Center with comfortable beds and wafting food smells and men in little white jackets say, if you have insurance, you can ride with us. <laughs> come aboard. And you look down here a ways and coming up the beach are two strange looking guys. Why don't you come on our boat? It's invisible, but you'll like it. <laughs> Who in their right mind is going to take an invisible goddamn boat where I can take a boat? And there's nothing wrong. You get the treatment center. It's just what they say. You're in there and you're well protected and you're cared for and you're fed and you're clothed. And the only problem is you just get out of sight of land and they say, well, we got to turn back now and get the next load. Well, what am I supposed to do now? You're much better. Swim like a bitch. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So you swim, and pretty soon you go, I can't go any farther. And here come these two fools in their invisible boat. Want to ride, buddy? <laughs> I'm not that goddamn sick. <laughs> sure. And you almost go down again, maybe. And here they come again. You want to ride, buddy? Yes. And they bring you in, you stand. As soon as you drive through, there's no boat here. This is stupid. Two guys floating in the air. What am I supposed to do? Better grab an oar and roll, buddy. <laughs> Screw you, buddy. <laughs> you swim some more and pretty soon here they come again. Hey, uh, you want to ride, buddy? Yeah, I do. I get the, what do you want me to do? Better grab an oar and roll. Oh, you crazy bastards. <laughs> And the irony about AA is, as you begin to row, the boat appears. But it doesn't appear until you begin to row. And you can be in that boat and drown. If you do not row, you will never have a boat. And you can row, and you get a boat, and eventually the boat gets solider and bigger and bigger than that treatment center skiff, and bigger than anything. And there's one other irony. When you stop rowing, the boat begins to disappear again, little by little. If you've got a big boat, it's going to take a while. But one day you're back in the water saying, how can this be? And I think that probably the difference between good treatment centers and bad treatment centers are this. These lethal treatment centers are to imply and almost say, you come to us and in X days or X weeks, we will teach you how to live without alcohol. You can swim on your own. 
And the good treatment centers say, we'll get you fixed up, we'll straighten you out. But when we turn back, you better look for those two bastards in their invisible boat. And that's all in the last analysis. The boat gets a good, you never want to, don't want to get to Michigan. You know, just stay on the boat. That's what they talk about. The trip is the thing. It's got it here. That's why we have these conventions to remind one another to keep rowing. Because sometimes you get tired of rowing. And sometimes you get bored with rowing. And I know all about rowing. I've done every goddamn stroke I can think of. And I get weary of it. But sometimes the only thing you can do is find some other boob and teach him to row and that restores your enthusiasm. And, what, and we could all sit in our meetings and mouth pretty phrases and say wonderful things and talk about how gorgeous the program is. But if you're not rowing out there, your boat's going to go. I'll tell you. Your boat's going to go. So that's all we're saying to one another. Fallible, weak human beings, sometimes tired, sometimes cross. Sometimes forget where we come from, sometimes lazy, sometimes self-indulgent, sometimes hedonistic, all of the fallibilities of the flesh. And somehow we have to proceed through that. You or I will never spend every day rowing, but we have to be around people who are rowing so we get the message to do it again. That's why I so strongly believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. As I rowed, it has never failed me. It has only failed me when I've stopped rowing and wondering why is my ship disappearing. So that's why we're here tonight and last night and today and tomorrow morning to practice grips on that oar. That's what sponsors are for. You know, they come by saying, hey, goof, you got your oar upside down. Oh. Yeah. I could have told you that. Shit, yes, yeah, no. <laughs> to help each other, to share our experience, strength, and hope with each other that we may obtain and maintain our sobriety and carry this message to those who still suffer so that we shall live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. Thank you.